Acts 2, 42 through 47. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All of the believers were together and, and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all people. And the Lord added to their number daily uh, those who were being saved. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. And student ministries will go to room 14. Yeah, hurry up, guys. You don't want to get stuck in the sermon. <laughs> Run. Try to be creative with an intro for today, but nope. Acts chapter two. <laughs> Just go to. We're at, we're walking through Acts, and I, I've I've really been appreciating walking through Acts. Um, and I also appreciate the times when you get a back to back sermon because I feel like you get to. I don't know. It just is. It's nice to be able to kind of finish one thought and then continue into the next and the structure with how we, we teach at Refuge. You don't always get it, so I always appreciate it when, when we do. So last week we, we were looking at the sermon that Peter had preached on that first day of Pentecost. So, so we'll back up here just for a second because it's important to recognize the context of this passage we're looking at tonight. So we had Pentecost, very exciting right? Spirit comes. Jesus had promised it, that he would come. And so Holy Spirit arrives, fills the 120 that were in the upper room waiting for Jesus faithfully. And then they leave that room. They go outside and there's a whole bunch of people there. They were there for celebration of Pentecost. And as they were there looking at what was going on, they were impacted by this group of people came out and started to share. They started to share this, the wonderful, the wondrous, the amazing things that God had done, was doing. It says they, they shared the mighty works of God, right? So they're doing that, and then Peter steps up, to sort of address the whole crowd. Because remember, we kind of talked about the side crowd who was kind of there. What are these people doing? Are they drunk? And Peter gives his sermon. Now, we're not going to walk all the way through the sermon, but it really was a call for these Israelites who were there. They were there to worship the Lord, partake in this celebration, this, this festival, this feast, and they... They responded. And so if you look at the end of Peter's sermon here, just looking at verse 37, we see a response. It says, now when they had heard 
this, meaning Peter's sermon, Peter's message, and, and possibly when they'd heard all the things that everyone was talking about, right? When they'd heard this, they were cut to the heart, right? This is something that was emotionally impactful. They said, brothers, what shall we do? Which is the best question that you can ask. So what or what should we do? Those are, those are great questions to ask. And the response was, repent, be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah, for forgiveness of your sins. You'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So three things there. Verse 39, for the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. It's a lot of people. And with many other words, he bore witness. So I, I would take that, verse 40 there, with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, so he continued his sermon. So it was probably a long one. All right, verse 41. So those who received his word were baptized and were added that day about 3,000 souls. So that's quite a jump in numbers from 120 to 3,000. That is a big jump, right? Probably, I would say, even though I think they were expecting once the Holy Spirit came that something would, would happen, something big. I don't think they imagined that in one day 3,000 would be added. That upper room is looking pretty small at that point. I don't know, maybe they did expect it. When, when I, I was thinking through this number, this number of 3,000, I, I thought back to those times where Jesus was out in the middle of nowhere and preaching, and you'd have 5,000 people fed and then 4,000 people fed. I wonder if the disciples thought back on that. The apostles were thinking, remember that time when, when, when that happened and then they all left? I think these ones are sticking around. These 3,000 were probably going to be there with them. So I thought I was thinking about that, how demoralizing it must have been to have so many who responded to Jesus and then left. And then on this day, to have so many who respond and stick around. That's got to be pretty cool. To sort of see those next steps and the things that Jesus said, you know, you'll do greater things. There you go, day one. Now we're up to 3,000. 3,120. I don't know if it's an exact number, but that's, that's roughly where we're at, right? And it says they responded. They responded in the exact way that Peter said, right? Believe and be baptized, and they were. And we talked about this last week. The, the baptism, it's not, the baptism isn't the salvation piece. The baptism, baptism is the identification piece. I'm with these people now, right? There was nobody who was baptized by John the Baptist who was just like, well, I'm just going to go back and do the things I did. I, the whole point was to do it publicly, to do it so people could see you, and that's definitely what they had in mind here. So we have this next passage here. So that's kind of the context. This next, this next passage that we have, that, this is where we're concentrating, obviously. This next section is oftentimes kind of plucked out of that context. That's why I wanted to spend a few minutes reminding Solve that. It's plucked out of there because a lot of times people say, well, what is the church really supposed to do? What, what, is, what is it that we're supposed to be? 
How are we supposed to act? What is it? And so they'll go here and they'll say, look, when the church was established, look at all these different things. And I don't totally disagree with that. But I do think we need to remember the context in which this was. Okay, so that, that's, that's one part. The other part is that this passage is also used, I think, very inappropriately for a lot of people. And it's used, in a, and we'll, we'll get to that in just, just, a, just a moment here, but... I wanted to walk through here and see the different things that were taking place. All right, so we, we already had it read. Thank you, Daniel. And we're going to look through this as, as a list. So uh, if in reading it, it felt very wonderful and dynamic, I will now make it a boring thing and read it as a list. So verse 42, what we have here is the phrase there is used that they were devoting themselves. Okay, they were devoting themselves to a, to a number of things to the apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, and the prayers. Now, I actually think the first one, the apostles' teaching is important because what had they come to Jerusalem for? Why, Why was that big group there? Why did you have this multitude of people from all these other nations? What were they there for? They were there to celebrate Pentecost, but it seems as though they stopped doing that And instead, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, which I think was interesting. For so many of them, they may have shown up and had this idea of what their days would be like, what they would do, and now they were actually fellowshipping with people that they would not have been fellowshipping with before, possibly. It says that they were breaking bread and they were praying. So this is the list of things. Now, did, did all those people, that multitude of people, um, receive the, the message of the Lord, baptize, receive the Spirit, and then they jet, did they jet? They're like, well, we got a 5 p.m. donkey to hit, so we got to get out. I, I think they probably stuck around a bit. And I think for a lot of them, they stuck around probably a lot longer than they thought they would. This is also a celebration of the harvest. So you'd, you'd imagine that some of them probably stayed for a little bit, but they did kind of have to get back. So maybe that 3,000 started to kind of dwindle a little bit. But you had a lot of people who were there, and they were doing these, these things. And these are familiar to us, right? We, we, we do these things. We devote ourselves. We would say as a church, this is probably the thing that, that not just we as a church, but most churches would say, we, we do these things. Right? We devote ourselves to teaching fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayer. And that breaking of bread, I don't think it's just this. This is a component, but probably was a lot of eating together. Like full meals, right? So you have that. Now, the other thing that they were doing, look at verse 43. It says they were in awe. They were in fear, reverential fear of what was happening there. They were seeing signs, they were seeing wonders, and if you also notice here specifically, they were being done by the apostles. Not necessarily by everyone. But I think it's important because throughout the book of Acts, you see the apostles being this this bridge and this connection back to Jesus, his teaching, who he was. This was the building of the church. It's not that the apostles were somehow superheroes, but they were that connection back to those who had been with Jesus. They had the message from Jesus. They had been taught by Jesus. And so they were, they were leading this thing, and they were seeing wonders and signs. Now, I think that's just the overarching thing. As we read through Acts, we 
we get to see what some of those are, right? So Peter, Peter heals, right? We see their visions, there are other things that are taking place. And so then we get to kind of see what those things were. So they were in reverent awe or fear. And then it says what the believers did. So we look at verses 46 through 40, sorry, 44 through 46. All who believed were together. They had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the, pro, uh, distributing the proceeds to all as they had need. And day by day, they were attending the temple. Um, we'll get there in a second, but you have, you have these things that are, that are taking place. Now, this is where we, st- I think, we start to break into a little bit of the situation. So remember, we've got thousands of people that weren't expecting to be there. They're hanging around. Did they stay an extra day, an extra week, an extra month? We don't know. But that would definitely add to the load of what was needed if they were all going to be together and they were all going to eat and they were all going to be fellowshipping together. So at this point, it's just the people in Jerusalem who are selling their possessions. Um, Where were most of the people who were in the upper room from? They're from Galilee. So even the 120 that were there, do they have much property there in Jerusalem to sell? I'm going to guess probably not. Maybe, you know, maybe, maybe some of them did. But I'm going to guess that a lot of them didn't. So this is on those new believers in Jerusalem who were there. How are we going to support this thing that's going on? They actually started selling property, selling possessions to fund what? Just the daily living of people who were there. Were they also giving to the poor? Probably. But the, it, this specifically says that they were together. They were breaking bread together. And later on, and we'll, we'll get into those, there was an actual expectation at a certain point that they were going to continue to be helped, but it needed to be done properly, right? And we see deacons, and we'll get to that at some point. But they're here, they're selling their possessions, their belongings, their property, and I think this is, this is also to note, this is giving that situation that we'll have a little later on with Ananias and Sapphira. Like there's something special and unique going on to support something that's special and unique going on there. Forty-six, verse forty-six, and day by day. So these are all the things they were doing every day. So day by day they were attending the temple together. So they were going to public places to worship and to pray. It says that they were t- they were breaking bread together in homes. So public and private meetings. They were receiving their food with gladness and and generous hearts, right? So there's a sharing of food. Verse 47, praising God and having favor with all people. And I think that's a really neat one. So that's not just with each other, but as their reputation is growing, it's saying with all people, right? With all the peoples there. Their reputation is starting to be established. What what is the church? What do they do? Who, Who are they? those things are starting to become normal. That's who, these, that's who these people are. Why are they different? They, you'd have other people who would be able to articulate what they do and who they are. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So they, 
And I think that's important too. They weren't just hangers on. They weren't sort of like the crowds when Jesus would teach, right? You had the crowds who may be there, they may leave. It says that they were being added to their number daily, those who were being saved. So these are people who are committing to be a part of that community that's growing. So a few things here. I think that there are some very situational things, and we kind of walked through some of this to say this is, it's not to say that this is never happening anywhere, but there are specific things happening here on that day that are pretty specific to that day, to that time period right there and then, that we probably don't have today, right? We don't have to all of a sudden support thousands of people who get dropped off. There's some communities that do. There's some churches in cities where refugees come pouring in out of, uh, across a border, and they may find themselves in a situation, hey, we gotta find out how to help people. So that this does still happen. But I think when we go back and we say, what is the church supposed to do? I think we can get some, some pretty important thematic things here. But it's not necessarily prescriptive. This isn't, everyone has to sell everything you have and bring it to the church. It's not saying that you have to do that. And I think sometimes we can kind of get a little bit distracted by that part of it. And, and we'll, we'll come back to, to some of those things there in just a second. But one of the things that I wanted to talk about before we dive into that a bit more is this, this passage is also, I think, taken out of context and used completely inappropriately to support certain political thought and certain governmental thought. And so the, I've, heard, I've heard several people teach and I've read books, different articles and things where they will use this passage to say, look at this, the early church, they were socialists. Or look, the early church, they were communists. And I say it because it then gets used to push a political ideology. There is no mention of any politics here at all. I think you could probably go back another chapter and see some politics being discussed, which we'll talk about in just a second, but there's no politics being discussed here. This is not, there's no authoritative arm that's coming in and forcing people to do one thing or another. And I think that's actually more the point. The apostles are there, the apostles are teaching, but there's no one from the outside who's coming in and forcing them to do anything. Uh, also, those concepts that we have, socialism, communism, those didn't exist at that time. And it wasn't as though when this happened, then they were established, that didn't happen either. And I say that because that is a popular thing that people will do. They'll go back here and they'll point to a couple things and specifically the phrase, they had all things in common. But I think it's actually saying something different. And the only reason why I wanted to bring that up is that you will see that. So if you get interested and you start looking up stuff and you'll find resources that will talk about that that this is what it's teaching. It's absolutely not. Uh, I'll, I'll go the other end too. This is also not teaching capitalism or democracy or republic. I mean, it's not teaching anything concerning government at all. And I think that's important because what you're seeing here, this is the response 
of a people who are indwelled by the Holy Spirit to a situation where they have to act like a family when they weren't one, they weren't one the day before. So today, what do we need to do to take care of this? And there were people who said, well, how are we going to do this? I didn't bring enough money because I only had enough for my travels or whatever else. And so there were people who were saying, you know what? I need to sell my property. I need, to, I need to do that. So you had people who were stepping up to help find a solution for the problem that they had. The problem was, oh my goodness, so many people got saved. Isn't that a great problem to have? It's too many people got saved today. We don't know what we're supposed to do. But it was people who were not from around there. The other reason to bring this up is because there's also this thought that this was the establishment of the church, and if you have a sour taste in your mouth about the church or overly organized religion, if you want to put it that way, they would say that this is the point where the church leaders are leading people to sell all their stuff and give them things. That's also not what's happening. And the reason we know that is after this, there's some time, we get, some, we get to see what's, what's going on, but then there's a great persecution that takes place. The Jerusalem church never recovers. It's not as though they kept all this stuff and they were very well off and they, they built buildings and did things. No, they were, they were pretty much destitute from here on out. They were all poor from, from here, here going forward to the point where Paul writes in a couple of letters about sending money back to Jerusalem to help them. He's basically passing the plate around saying, we gotta help the church in Jerusalem. They helped all of us. They helped all the Gentiles out of everywhere to train up people who went back home. We, we need to help them now, right? That was Paul's push to, we need to take care of them, their, their family, and they're really in need. So this idea that the Jerusalem church becomes rich, that also didn't happen. If it did, it was short-lived because that's not how they're described later on. So what I think what you see here is how people live in response to the gospel as spirit-filled people. Right? So they respond in these particular ways. But I don't think that they're responding in a way that was unheard of. I don't think they're responding in a way that shouldn't be expected. We're going to spend some time in some other passages. So I hope you brought your Bible. If not, there's Bibles there. Uh, John, go to John chapter 18. And I bring this up because, this, this passage, because I think this is, this is where the politics comes in. John 18, looking at verse 36. This is Jesus speaking to a government official who is addressing Jesus as a government official, sort of. So Jesus is standing before Pilate, and they're having a conversation, a very interesting conversation, worth, worth a time of reading for sure. But verse 36, Jesus answers him. Basically, Pilate's a little confused. Like, well, if you're a king, then he's trying to figure these things out. And Jesus answers, says, my, my kingdom's not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been what? They would have been fighting. Like if this really was a kind of governmental system that, you, that you're used to, this thing would roll out different. On that day, Jesus was king, 
and he was fighting. He was fighting for his people in a battle they couldn't understand. He said they would have been fighting that I might be delivered, or that I might not be delivered um, to the Jews. He says, my kingdom's not of this world. So that's really important to establish because that is not what they're doing in Acts chapter 2. They're not establishing the kingdom, at least the kingdom that we would think. They're not gathering resources. They're not training up people to overthrow the Romans, to push out the Pharisees. To, that's not what's going on. Jesus says, this kingdom's not of this world, or my kingdom's not of this world. That's, that's not what's happening here. Mark chapter 12 Told you we're going to move around. Mark 12. Mark 12, 17. This is when Jesus is discussing taxes. Some of you may have filed your taxes already. I think most of us probably have not. Jesus had an answer for taxes. Someone tried to trick him and say, so should we uh, pay Caesar taxes? Should we, should we do that? And Jesus gives this answer, right? Well, he holds up the coin and says, whose face is on it? Whose image is on here? Well, Caesar. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they all marveled, right? He, he got them again. Um, the thing about that, the image of Caesar, yeah, you give that back image of God, that's God's. Right? So actually, yeah, just pay your taxes and then actually then live appropriately. And so part of this is, is, is part of the reason they were established there in Jerusalem was to provide a new kind of governance. And it's not really. That's not really the case. But they're supposed to live in light of this so they're not building up a group to say, oh, we're no longer going to be governed that way. This is God's kingdom now. The kingdom's not of this world. We don't have to pay taxes. No, they actually settle into that a little bit more firmly to say, okay, we'll pay you, but then we're giving ourselves over to the Lord. They were actually living that out because if you look at what they're doing, they're giving of themselves. This is not a normal thing to sell your property to support other people who are essentially strangers at that point. That's not normal. Yet that's exactly what they're doing. Matthew 19. Here we have a story. Story of the rich young ruler. We don't know who this who this guy was. And we're not gonna dive too deeply into this. Verse 16. Matthew 19 says, And behold, a man came, uh, came to him, saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he goes into a conversation about essentially the merit of the commandments, right? Well, what have you done? What, 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 have, you, uh, what have you accomplished according to the law? And he's basically saying, oh, I, haven't, I, haven't, I haven't broken any of the laws. I'm good. I'm a good guy. Um, so Jesus challenges him. says, you know, I haven't uh, committed adultery, I haven't stolen anything, I don't bear false witness. Side note, 
actual side note. He says, I haven't stolen anything. The fact that there are so many laws concerning stealing and how people steal and when they steal and all these different things does actually show that the Old Testament and the law is, is concerned with private property, just in case. We kind of talked about socialism and communism, but I thought I'd throw that in there. Uh, and it's also important because of what, what else is going to happen here in just a second. Jesus says to him in verse 21, if you would be perfect, go sell your possessions. Go sell what you have, what you possess. Give it to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. So it's not like you do that, and then you got your ticket. You, you also then come follow me. When the young, uh, young man heard this, he, was, uh, he said he went away sorrowful, for he had many possessions. And then Jesus starts to talk about Hey, can the, can the rich enter heaven? He says, it's, that's actually pretty, it's pretty difficult for the rich man to enter into heaven. You got that phrase, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of the needle. And there's this story about, you guys heard that story? Oh, in Jerusalem, there's this gate. It's called the needle gate. And the camel can fit through, but they have to take their boxes off. Off there and off pack. Uh, I'm pretty sure that's false. But point still remains. The point is, is that it's an impossible thing for a camel to go through the eye of a needle, right? Or at least very difficult. And the, the well, the disciples at this point, the disciples say to them, well, then who can be saved? Well, why would they say something like that? If the rich people can't be saved, then how can we be saved? Because they, they actually thought of riches as being that, 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 signal to everyone else that God had blessed them. God had their hand on them, so of course they're saved. Of course the rich people are going to heaven because God blesses them. It's just kind of, it's a weird thing to, to kind of think about. Their perspective on that was God is obviously blessing them with riches, so of course they're going to heaven. Verse 26 Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible, with God all things are possible. Peter says in reply, see, we have left everything and followed you. Right? Jesus sees them fishing and they just drop their nets and they just leave. Right? Matthew leaves his, his tax table. Right? Drops it and leaves. See, we've, we've done this. We've, we've left everything to follow you. What then will we have? What, what do we get for that? Jesus said, truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit in his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So don't worry, Peter. You're, yeah, you're special. Um, don't worry, you will have my favor. Verse 29, and everyone who was left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. And I think there's something interesting here and depending on the translation you have it might actually say we'll receive a hundredfold here. Anyone have a translation that mentions that? Like that's, that's an expectation now that you can have. You'll receive it a hundredfold here. 
Now, isn't that weird? It says you'll, you'll receive a hundredfold and you'll also inherit eternal life. And then he says, many who are first will be last and many who are last will be first. So think about this. How many of them had given up everything to follow Jesus? Now, Acts chapter 2 happens. Where do you think they're all staying? They might still be staying in that upper room, but it mentions them staying with different people all the time throughout Acts. Where are they staying? They're staying in their families' houses. So if you leave behind a family and possessions and land and all those things, by joining this thing, this assembly, this thing called the church, are you not increasing what you have a hundredfold? Think about this. How many of us, if, if, you know, and some of us may have some memories of these things, you lose your house. If any of us, all of a sudden, middle of the night, have lost everything, we walk, walk to some place, we drive someone, we knock on the door and say, we lost, our house is gone. I don't know, freak tornado, I don't know. What sort of reception do you think we would have from someone in the church? Come on in. Yeah, absolutely, come in. We'll get the inflatable uh, mattresses. Does everybody have some of those? Oh, in the back, I see you. Inflatable mattresses. Oh, we've got couches. Stay with us. Right? Wouldn't that kind of be our expectation? Isn't that kind of what happened? You know who does that? Family. I say that, but how many of you, either you have personal experience or other people where your family would be like, we'll put you up in a hotel. Don't stay with us. I'm sure there's some of us who actually don't have the best family experiences. And this is meant to change that. How we operate as the church is meant to be that understanding of what a family really is. We, ha- we all have a father in heaven. We're all of the same blood. We all have the same spirit. If we needed anything, I don't think there's any of us who would not help us out. We just mentioned meal trains. That's a small thing. But that's a huge blessing. How many of you benefited from meal trains? Yeah, we definitely have. We continue to have children because we benefited from <laughs> the meal trains. I mean, it's not the only reason. It did come up, though. The way that we operate, it very much is when we join the family when we're part of the church, don't we just increase a hundredfold in what we have available to us in a way that no one else really couldn't boast? We really do have that. And if things got real tough, we would hunker down even more. I know we would. I know how when then the fires happened, how we how we were, how we took care of each other and went and, you know, things were crazy and made sure that people were okay and all those types of things. I mean, that's, that's what we do. 
Well, that's unique. That, that's the church. The church is the example of that. And for some people who don't have a family like that, the church can be that example for you. Let's go to Galatians 5. Galatians 5, it should be very familiar. We just taught through this, everybody. Not too long ago. Galatians 5, verses 22 through 25. Familiar. But the fruit of the Spirit is, I'm sure if I waited, everybody could recite it. Fruit of the Spirit is love, joy. Oh, louder, louder, sorry. After joy, I started, I started losing you. Self-control, okay, someone, someone ended it, good. Right, and I'll read it out. Through the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Notice this last phrase. I think we throw this one out. We throw this last part of this verse out. But it's super important. And I'll be honest, like, this, this next part of this verse we need to take this and we need to bring it to Acts to say this is what they're living out. It says, against such things there is no law. Okay, if you want to go to this passage in Acts chapter 2 and you want to make it about a governmental system or some sort of economic system or something else, understand this, when the Spirit comes, the Spirit is going to evidence himself through these different things. Against such things there is no law. Law. Okay. The church in Acts chapter 2, everything they're doing, they're doing by the prompting of the Holy Spirit in accordance with the teachings of Jesus. We just walked through a whole bunch of them. And we'll go through another one here in just a second. There is no law against living this way. Living in accordance with with the teachings of Jesus and dwelled by the Holy Spirit as the family of God, as the kingdom of God, can happen in any corner of the world, in any tribe, in any, any culture, economic situation, any governmental system, it exists. And it can thrive. Do you know why? Because there's no law against any of these things. Living in accordance with the Spirit. Sometimes, I think... We as Christians wait until culture catches up to us or laws catch up to us or economic systems catch up to us. Well, I should pay my taxes. I should take care of poor people. Well, we don't have that option, do we? Nor should we wait. We live this out now. There is no law against any of these things. And so you know what we do? We live this out. This is what we do. 2 Corinthians 8. I'm, we're not going to go all the way through this, but 2 Corinthians 8, verses 1 through 15. Maybe mark this one too. This is a good one to go back to. 2 Corinthians 8 is um, a guilt trip that Paul lays on the Corinthians. Let's just be honest. That's what it is. And he starts out with saying, you guys know the church in Macedonia, right? Great church. 
Great brothers and sisters there in Macedonia. But you know what? They are dirt poor. They got nothing. In fact, they owe other people shoes. They don't have shoes and they're in debt to shoes. They got nothing. Their town is failing. Their city is, is going away. Their main industries are falling apart. And you know what? That, that church over there, over in Macedonia, managed to somehow put up some kind of a collection to send over to Jerusalem. Hey, Corinthians, rich, rich people, people with many resources. In fact, the discussions that Paul has with the Corinthians, they have so much that before everyone can gather to church, they've already eaten so much and drunk so much that they're actually in the service drunk because they have so much. I mean, that's, that's the situation they find themselves in. They've got too much. They just kind of forgot. They said they would give money to Jerusalem, and they just kind of forgot because reasons, but it wasn't important to them. It wasn't something that they really took joy in, apparently. So Paul says, hey, you, you need to do this. Okay, you promised you would. You need to give to the church in Jerusalem. Now, I bring this up because then Paul kind of talks about Kind of this situation, he says, you know, if, if you're rich and you have now, you should give because someday you will be what? Poor. Someday you won't have. But you having given in your riches, then you can have an expectation that the Lord is going to use someone in their riches to serve you. Right? And by quality, he also talks about those who don't have and says for them, they're to live in accordance of the, the grace of God, right? And what you have is this, this example of Jesus. So the Father has riches, and he can give to anyone. Jesus lived poor, and he trusted the Lord for his resources. So if you're rich, be like God. If you're poor, be like Jesus, but what he doesn't say is, well, now we have the church, and so now we shouldn't have rich and poor. He's realistic. He says, you're going to have rich and poor. Jesus also said, like, the poor will always be with you. You'll always have them. So it's our responsibility, those who have, to give to those who don't. And if you don't, to trust the Lord that he's going to provide for you. But it's not done out of coercion and it's not done with force. It's done by people genuinely giving out of what they have. Because guess what? If you have a lot, you have a lot because the Lord has allowed you to have a lot that you might be like the Father. And this is important because this is how the church is living. Right there in Acts chapter 2. This is exactly what they're doing. Those who had much, they sold it and they gave it to other people. Who needed it? Matthew 22. This is the last other passage we're going to look at, and then we're going to land the plane here. Matthew 22, verse 37. This should be familiar as well. Verse 37 says, And he said to him, Oh, he was asked, what's the greatest commandment? Okay. 
And Jesus said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the greatest commandment. And the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the laws, or all the law and the prophets. This is sort of the other side of what we talked about before. There is no law against living by the Spirit. There is, however, a law that does tell us that we should love the Lord with all our heart, soul, mind. And love our neighbor as ourselves. The church in Jerusalem at this point, and we can call them that now, which is pretty neat. The church in Jerusalem, what we read about here in Acts chapter 2, they were living those things. They were living out the teachings of Jesus. I've heard it said uh, in, in one of the teachings I was looking at that this was something new and unique and you know something brand new when the Spirit came. It kind of seems like this is exactly what Jesus intended to happen and taught very specifically. So that when the Spirit came, they were able to do what the Spirit was leading them to do because they were following the principles of Jesus. And I say all these things because they, a lot of people will go to this passage and say, this is what we should be doing as the church. It's like, but that's not everything that the church does. This isn't, has, there's no discussion here of church governance, so there's no discussion here of discipleship and, and, and some of the other things. There was fellowship and things like that. Because if that was it, we, we probably didn't need most of this. It's not all the church does. But it is interesting that it's stated this is what they did. And they did it as those who are following the teachings of Jesus filled by the Spirit. And guess what? That can work everywhere and anywhere. That's why we don't have in Acts a description of what every church has to do, what every church has to have, what every church is supposed to uh, be a part of, all of the things that say you, you, you all have to have children's ministry. It doesn't say that. But we facilitate children's ministry to fulfill the teachings of Jesus as we're led by the Holy Spirit. So we do it in an organized way. That's what, that's what a program is. That's all it is. The problem is when those programs overtake the teachings of Jesus. That's the problem. That's where we get stuck. But the church at this point in this time, in Acts chapter 2, they are fulfilling what Jesus has taught them. And they were living out what the apostles were teaching them by what Jesus said. This was the representation of the kingdom of God on earth. Jesus preached about the kingdom of God on earth throughout his ministry, throughout his time of teaching. He would talk about the kingdom of God. These are kingdom values, and they can be lived, like we said before, in any culture, anywhere. It doesn't matter. You don't have to overthrow a government to be able to have a healthy church. It's just not necessary. The church is the church. It's the assembly that God has placed where he has placed it. It's where we're deployed. Now the reason, the reason that I think this is really important is because sometimes we treat it like the kingdom of God is something separate from what we do every day, all the time. Remember we were talking about all the things that they did every day. They were in public meeting and they were in in homes meeting and they were breaking bread together and they were, they were doing all these things together, right? This is kingdom value kind of stuff. 
This is that transition for them to be the representatives of God on earth. Now, is the church the kingdom in totality? No. I think we'd like it to be, but it's not. We're still waiting for the firm establishment of the kingdom where Jesus will fulfill the, all the promises that he's made for when the kingdom comes. And you'll actually have that. And I think sometimes we want to try to find ways for everything on earth to already be there. We want to arrive there, right? It's almost like we want to find that place so we can just rest. Well, guess what? It's not time to rest. We get to carry our rest around with us like we don't have to rest to merit God's favor. We can live in that rest. It ain't time to rest now. And we're not going to find a place where it's like, good, all right, so everyone's Christians here now, so now we can finally sit down. No, we don't have that. We don't have that luxury right now. The kingdom is coming. There is a perfect government that is discussed, though. Jesus does sort of bring it up. There's only one form of government that we could say is the absolutely perfect form of government. Do you know what it is? It is not democracy, believe it or not. It is an absolute theocratic monarchy. That's it. That's done. That's our kingdom. We happen to have the benevolent creator as that king, so it will be perfect. But that is the only government that really works for us. Now, do we get to live that way? Do we get to shirk the laws that we live under here? No, that's the beauty of the church. We can go anywhere, and kingdom living works. But we're not done. We can't rest. We don't get to stop. It's not as though we can do a certain thing, and once we've achieved that, we can, we can end it. Jesus is the one who will let us know. That's why we live in this tension. You probably have heard it before. If you haven't, you probably will. The now and the not yet of the kingdom. There's a tension there. But I think one of the goals that we should have is when Jesus does arrive, is our life and our fellowship to the point where there's as little change as possible. When the kingdom is established here on earth, if we have to do drastic changes to our everyday, maybe we're not doing it right. Ourselves, our families, our fellowship, our assembly. That's our goal. That's where we should be moving towards. That's why we should encourage each other and iron should be sharpening iron and we should be looking for those opportunities to care for each other and love each other and, and build each other up. Right? We don't build for ourselves the kingdom here on earth. No, we live in that way. We live in that way so that when the kingdom arrives, we will be recognized as kingdom people. And it does fulfill the words of Jesus that he gave that we talked about not too long ago. This should be our prayer. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And you know what? That's what people are looking for. They may not know it, but that's what they're missing. That's what they're missing in their lives. That's what they're looking for. That's why we have to show them. We've got to tell them. That's what we're here for. That's why we're still here. And just like in Acts 2, when that opportunity arrives, we need to live like kingdom people guided by the Spirit to do what we're supposed to do on that day.
Because believe it or not, we do actually need the Spirit to live just that every day by day. What should we do today? Father, thank you for the example of the early church. Lord, sometimes it's easy to think, uh, if we just did it how they did it back then, then everything would be just right. Father, thank you for sending the Spirit. Thank you that we are filled and indwelled by a Spirit that will lead us into truth. Thank you for the balance that we see in the early church of being those who found ways to care for each other, found ways to extend out, to go out. And as they were going to make disciples, Lord, I pray that we, Lord, would be faithful where you have us. Thank you that you didn't abolish rich and poor. You didn't abolish all of these different positions people find them in because, Lord, thank you that you will deploy us to these different places. I pray that you would allow us to have contentment in where you have placed us. Maybe we'd like to make more money. Maybe we'd like to do something else. Maybe we'd like to do something different. But, Lord, thank you for how you have deployed us where we are. Lord, I pray that we would remember or maybe for the first time realize that we are your indwelled servants and you send us where we are supposed to go. I pray that we would have those open eyes to be able to see what we are supposed to be doing. Lord, I pray that we would weekly, if not daily, report back to each other of the mighty and wonderful things that you're doing in our families, in our personal lives. Lord, where you have sent us and where you've deployed us. I pray we wouldn't, Lord, grow weary in doing good, but instead we would be excited and energized to know that we are where you have called us to be. Pray that we would be easily, Lord, moved by your spirit, that we would help each other in that way. I pray that we would overshare with each other, Lord, that we might know for sure that by talking with other spirit-filled people and Lord, praying with each other that we are doing and accomplishing what God has called us to do. And if we're not, we pray for your leading. Lord, I pray that you'd be with us as we continue to walk through the book of Acts. I pray you'd pave the road for us to learn and understand and to know what we are all supposed to do as your family and as your kingdom on earth. And Lord, I pray. I pray in all seriousness, Lord, that you would come quickly. And I pray that you would find us at work. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.